Hey everybody, welcome back this week as we walk through the Word together. And as we walk out this truth, we discover that life is produced in us and also in other people. We are walking with one another, growing together to see the life of Christ continue to manifest and birth in us and then to see it spread outside of the walls of our houses and our church building. Well, it's great to be with y'all. And uh, I love this worship team. How about you guys? Isn't it awesome to be able to come in here? We've been, we've been lurking in the back, my wife Beth and I now, for several weeks and, well, actually a few months, and know a number of you already, and it's just a privilege to be able to be here today. Um, I have to admit, I, I went to, I went to a, a Christian college on a basketball scholarship and wasn't a Christian. That was interesting initially. Um, but then I went to a grad school that taught theology, and then I've gone to a couple of seminaries, and and there was one question that I was always a little nervous to ask. When everybody was talking about prayer, they just dove right in and, and made the assumption, you just ought to, you should pray. And, and I prayed, and I enjoyed time with God, but, but I had a question I was almost afraid to ask out loud. It's like, because, you know, in some circles, you have to be careful. Like, if you're a Democratic convention, you never say the word Trump, you know, and if you're at a Trump convention, you never say the name of our current president. So whatever, you know, you'd like some places you have to tread lightly. So I was afraid to ask the question. Here's the question. Y'all ready for this? Oh, that's just going to be a long day. Come on. Y'all ready for this? All right. If God is sovereignly in charge of the universe, if he, if he holds everything together by the power of his word, um, does it matter if I pray? I mean, he's big. Will God's will on earth be accomplished or limited if I do or don't pray? That was my question. So we're gonna dive into that question today. To get some answers from the Bible, let's begin in a really unlikely place. Turn your Bibles or your smartphones or if you brought tablets of stone, whatever you brought, turn to Luke 15. So this is a really famous parable. Um, I think most of you have heard it. It's uh, the story of the prodigal son. And it talks more than we realize about why we should pray. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read this lately, but the son demands his inheritance before his dad is even dead. That's just bad manners, I have to say. If one of my kids comes home for Christmas and looks at me and like says, he's still breathing, I'm a little disappointed, you know? <laughs> And then they ask for their inheritance early. I'm probably going to show them the door. I mean, but this is a really different thing that happens. He asks for his inheritance early, and remarkably, his father gives his inheritance, this inheritance to this demanding son. And then the son further insults the father by leaving, by just, by just leaving. Now, a lot of us don't think about this, but inheritances in those days were predominantly land. So what he probably did was he probably sold off a portion of the family farm, which wouldn't have just given him cash. It would have also disaffected his father and his, his other siblings and his mother. So he takes his cash and he heads to Vegas, essentially, travels far away and squanders everything he has. And when the money's gone, you know what happens next, right? The friends are gone. The friends are gone. And he's so desperate that he takes a job, the only job he can find, and it's, 
It's living with and feeding pigs. And this is a good Jewish kid. I mean, this is not where a good Jewish boy wants to be. In fact, he's so hungry, he starts looking at the pig slop. You ever seen pig slop? He starts looking at it and thinks, I might be able to eat that. He is, he is that hungry. He knows he, he, he needs to make a change, but the thought of, of the place where he can get help, he's betrayed everybody there. But he becomes so desperate, he finally makes his way home. I can see him walking home, reciting the same line over and over again. Have you ever got ready to ask somebody for forgiveness and you say it out loud, you practice it in the car while you're driving and everything? This was like really monumental. So, you know, I've sinned against God and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. I think what he was hoping was they would just let him be a servant there on the farm, get three squares a day and a place to sleep. So he approaches the farm. He can see it on the horizon. He just hopes to be able to get something to eat. And in Luke 15, 20, this remarkable homecoming unfolds. Jesus tells us that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, he's been reciting, you know, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. But the father said, he just ignores what he said, like just flows right past it, calls the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it um, and let's celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. And he was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. People that study literature call this the greatest story ever told. Because it's all of our stories, right? At least it's my story for sure. And it's also a story about all of humankind because we've all gone prodigal at one time or another. Now notice, in Jesus' parable, when the son returns, he receives three undeserved gifts. Here's the first, the father's best robe. Like he's in tattered clothes, he's filthy, he's been on the road walking, he's just a mess. And the father immediately says, get my best robe. You know, the one with the sequins. You know, I, I don't know, maybe... Uh, he goes and he brings out the robe and he wraps it around him and he covers his filth and his shame. It's like a symbol of mercy and pardon and forgiveness. And then he gets shoes and puts them on his feet. Now, we don't get this because it's cultural, but servants didn't wear shoes, but sons did. You've heard the old saying, that guy's well-heeled. That's talking about the heels on your shoes. It means wealth. And so... He actually, he's basically saying, you got a place again. You're, 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 you're a son again. And then the last thing he did, does is he brings a ring. Again, very cultural. So we could blow right past this ring thing. In Jesus' day, a person representing the family business was given a family ring. It would have like initials on it or maybe a family crest. And if you and I were sealing a deal, we were, we were, doing a contract, we would drip hot wax on the, on the contract, and then I would take my ring and I would press it into the wax and leave my mark. That's where we get the term, seal the deal. So in receiving this ring, the father is not only covered his shame with the cloak and put the shoes on and said, you've got a place again, 
But he said, you represent me again. You represent me again. So pardon is given, a place is given, and power is given. Jesus makes it clear that when we come home to our Father, it's God's will, I get this, this is really important, that we be given authority to represent him and seal deals in his name. God's design for us is that we'll always wear and use his ring, asserting the Father's will in heaven here on earth. So let's go back and let's look at the big picture. Y'all still awake out there? I hear you breathing. I know you're out there. All right, turn to Genesis 1. If you're new to this, that's the first book of the Bible, right there at the beginning, Genesis 1, and we're going to be at verse 26. Then God said, let us, this is that interesting Hebrew word, us, Elohim, it's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity talking to one another here. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them, what? You hear that? See that word? Let's rule it out. What is the word there? Rule, let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This word image speaks of Adam and Eve being so much like God that wherever they walk, everything that's alive in the garden knows that they're an extension of the Father. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, well, well, he's a spitting image of his daddy. You ever heard something like that before? Do you know that is the result of a lazy tongue? 200 years ago, in Old English, they were saying, well, he's a spiriting image of his father because the son looked like and acted like and had the same disposition as his dad. So Adam and Eve were spiriting images of the Father as they walked through the garden. Everywhere they went, they represented God. Verse 28 of Genesis 1. God blessed them, which sounds like he's declaring authority and telling them what to do, like, go get them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. This church is having no problem with that part. Y'all are obeying Jesus completely in the be fruitful thing. It's just amazing the number of kids running around here. Keep it up. It's awesome. Fill the earth and subdue it. And what's this next word? Rule. There it is again. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over ever, every living creature that moves on the ground. So Genesis describes our ancestors being given authority by God to represent him over everything that he created. God created us to rule and even to look like him as we function as an extension of him in the world. In Psalm 8, 3 through 8, David's uh, kicking back one night, maybe out on the, on the kingly patio, and he's looking up at the stars in the sky, and, and he's reflecting on his place in God's world. And in Psalm 8, 3, he reflects, he says, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's like, where do we all fit into all of this, God? And then he reads on. He, he, 
You made him a little lower than God and you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him, what? There it is again. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. So before we went prodigal, our God-given purpose was to rule and represent God on his planet. We wore the Father's ring. Psalm 115, 16 goes even further in explaining our pre-prodigal relationship with God. David writes, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to man. And this Hebrew word given means he's like delegated to, he's assigned to, it's, it's our responsibility. He's entrusted its care to us. So God empowered Adam and Eve with authority. He made them like him so much that they're his image bearers and he delegated to them the authority to govern, representing him doing the father's business. In short, God chose a through human method for ruling over creation. So the all-powerful sovereign God's intent was to delegate the governance of the earth to us. And then you all know what happened. Genesis 2, verse 15 says, and the Lord took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, which means to take it and actually develop it. That's pretty cool that God invites us into creative activity to take what he's given to us and develop it further and to keep it. And this is a very interesting word. It means to guard it, like to defend it. Why would God empower people to protect what he's made unless there's something or someone that it needs protection from? Think about this. If the earth remained paradise, it would be because man and woman who were delegated authority by God would re represent the Father's will, keeping the world under his rule. Things could only go wrong if Adam and Eve and those who followed us didn't fulfill their roles as guardians and protectors. Why would God place so much in the hands of people? That's a, I mean, I'll tell you why. He loves relationship with us. He, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, they're just hanging out. Just, he loves relationship with us. I have three daughters. They're all, they're all adults now. Uh, they, they actually all have children now, which is, makes me feel even older as I say it. There's actually a bottle of oxygen sitting right off stage in case I need it at any moment. Jay required that for me to speak here today. Defibrillator over there too. But I remember when my, uh, my daughter... Um, Hope, I remember this so vividly, she was about five and I was down in the basement and I was working on this little engine and I was trying to fix it and, you know, taking it all apart and cleaning it. And she came downstairs and she still had a little, a little speech impediment, which I thought was adorable at the time. And, and she stood there, she had these big brown eyes, little blonde toe-headed girl. And she stood there and looked at me and she said, uh, daddy, I came down here because I thought you might want my help. She knew nothing about what I was doing. But you know what? How many dads in the room? Just, you have kids, raise your hand. What do you think I said? Oh, yeah, I absolutely need your help. Because she knew she didn't know anything. What she was really saying was, I want to be with you. Our father invites us to join him in what he's doing in the world because he wants us to be in relationship with him and to be joining him in what he's doing. 
But as you likely know, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve went prodigal themselves. They believed a lie that we've all believed at one time or another, and that is that life apart from God will be better than life with God. If we can just do our own thing, we'll be good. How's that turned out for us when we've gone that way? So they squandered all that had been entrusted to them, including their authority over creation. And so complete, this is mind-boggling to me, but so complete was what was entrusted to them that, that Adam and Eve had the freedom to give it away to another. And that's precisely what they did. Tragically, Adam and Eve did that. The account of history gets even more remarkable. So Jesus comes, Luke chapter four, verse five. This is, Jesus arrives. I love that, that Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. It's like, next man up, this one's gonna be sinless and we're gonna get it right this time. He comes. And just as he had with Adam and Eve, Satan launched an effort to get Jesus to turn over his place of delegated governance and authority to him, to give his ring away. Luke 4, 6. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me. There it is. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you'll worship me, it'll all be yours. Shortcut. You don't have to go through anything. Just, you just have to serve me and I'll give you everything. It's interesting, Jesus didn't refute Satan's claim that he had been given everything. In fact, three different times in Scripture, Jesus says Satan is the ruler of the world. It's a, you want to look them up, John 12, John 14, John 16, each of those chapters. I don't know, have you ever watch the news at night and just get mad? I don't know if it's just old dudes like me who start yelling at the TV. My wife says, would you stop yelling at the TV is that, am I, please help me, just somebody. Did anybody else, I mean, is it just old geezers that yell at the TV? Y'all, you, you just look at your, yeah, thank you. That was a charity hand lifting, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm hugging you after the service. You, prepare for it, prepare for it, it's coming. You ever ask yourself, why is the world such a mess? I mean, it's heartbreaking. We can't get people together right now in our society. Things are getting dark we have imminent war in, in several places around our planet because of the selfishness of people. Violence is, is epidemic. Why? Is it because it's God's will? No. It's because people have relinquished their delegated roles of governance and authority. They've given away their rings and they've stopped representing the Father and started representing the enemy. That's why. Because men and women made in the image of God have stopped fulfilling their place on the planet. So when Jesus tells the story of the father restoring the ring of authority to the prodigal, what he's saying is, when you return home to God, you receive more than just forgiveness and acceptance. Your authority to represent him is also given. He returns that to you as well which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. We, I'm just going to, you are redeemed to seal deals. You are 
redeemed to listen to the Father, find out what his business is, and then speak it into existence through your prayers or to stand against the evil in your prayers and guard the planet. This is our place. This is our God-entrusted role. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, you have a ring. It's time to use it. John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. That's true. God's sovereign plan is to work through those he's forgiven, restored, and empowered. So I just wanna take you quickly through three examples of how this works. You all still, you still hanging in there? You good? All right. Oh, you're doing all right over there. Nice. Well done. Him not so well. Slap, slap him. Example one. 1 Kings 18. Y'all uh, flip over to 1 Kings 18. Here we discover that for three years there's been no rain at all in, in Israel. And um, God's judgment has been passed by giving no rain because the people have turned and started to follow um, pagan gods and the priests of these pagan gods. And the prophets in northern Israel have either been killed or in hiding And one of these prophets is a person named Elijah, and he's living in a cave almost up on the Lebanese border, hiding from this wicked king king named Ahab and his wife named Jezebel. By the way, never name your daughter Jezebel or your son Ahab. Just skip those names if you're thinking about it. So God speaks to Elijah so powerfully. He says, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Three years, it's not rained. This drought, people are dying of hunger. Now, just imagine you're, you're him. Let's, let's make this even today. Let's say you're living somewhere in the Middle East and, and God comes to you and he says, I want you to go to the Ayatollah of Iran and confront him as a Christian. God would have to speak pretty clearly, right? And wouldn't that be terrifying? We read the Bible sometimes and we fly right past these things. But Elijah's faithfulness is, is amazing So with great courage, he goes and he confronts King Ahab and he challenges him to a showdown. He says, I want you to, that mountain over there, Mount Carmel, we're gonna climb up there. I want you to bring your priests, these prophets of Baal, and it's gonna be the God, my God, the God of Israel against your gods and we're going to see who really is the true God. And through a series of events, God intervenes powerfully. And the people that have gathered to see this showdown, there's always a showdown, there's always a crowd, right? So the crowd immediately turns and drives the priests away, and and the people turn back in in great great, uh, brokenness to God. Now, according to this account, whose idea was it that rain be given as we started? Who who said, I'm going to make it rain? Help me now. God, right? He said, I'll send the rain. So, so let's see how God does it. 1 Kings 18, 42. Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down in the earth and he put his face between his knees. Now, just, just this is a fascinating posture. This is the posture of a woman giving birth. It's like he's, in, he's, in, he's birthing something in prayer. And he said to his servant, I want you to go up and look out toward the sea. If you've been to Mount Carmel, you, you know you can look out and you can see the Mediterranean there. And it's where all weather comes from. It all originates from the sea. 
For three years, there hasn't been a single cloud rise up off the the Mediterranean Sea, and there's been no rain at all. And he says to his servant after he's been in that position for a few minutes, go look and see if there's any clouds developing. And he goes up over the hill and he yells back, nada! He gets back in the tuck position again. He goes back to praying. And he, he, he said, he sent him back seven times. That's what the scriptures tell us. In verse 44, and the seventh time the servant said, hey, look, there's a little cloud like a man's hand rising up off the sea. Elijah then stood, the scriptures tell us, and if you read the East Tennessee version, he turns to the servant and to King Ahab and he says this, it's fixing to rain. That's what he says. Okay, I made that up. But he really, he literally declares it's about to pour and he runs down the mountain because he knows it's almost impassable when it's pouring rain. Why were Elijah's prayers essential? Because God works through people to whom he's delegated authority. It's how he's chosen to get things done in his world. It's his choice to do it that way. And he's included us. If you're a child of God, if you've been born of the Spirit, when he prompts you to pray, don't blow it off. He's signaling to you. He's calling you into his work And he's asking you to loose things or bind things, to stop things or birth things. You've got a ring and you've got to use it. Here's a second example. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's one of my favorite people in the Bible. It's 606 BC. He's in Babylon. His people have been held there for 70 years because they too violated their covenant with God and were taken as captives into this far land and and David's checking the calendar. He's been, he's been reading Jeremiah's prophecy and he puts it all together and he says, hey, 70 years is up. We've been told after 70 years, we get to go back to, we get to, go back to Israel. And so in Daniel 9.3, we read, then I turned my face to the Lord God, which is a way of saying I gave him my full attention. And seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This is a prayer of repentance. It's like, Lord, I'm so sorry that we disobeyed you and ignored you before. You have my undivided attention. Tell me what to do now. Daniel knows that God's promised after 70 years, they'll get to go back home. 70 years has now arrived, but he understands God's design for doing things on the earth happens through people who pray. And then Daniel, if you read the account, do you remember how long he prayed? Anybody remember? 21 days, 21 days. And in Daniel 10, 12, after 21 days of him asking, an angel appears to Daniel. Now, this is one of the funniest things to me in the whole Bible. Have you noticed that every time an angel appears to someone, they always say the first thing, they always say this, hey, don't be afraid. It never works. It never works. And Daniel describes when the angel steps from, from the presence of God into his, his dimension of reality, and he's resplendent and light and powerful. Daniel says, the blood went out of my face and my face went to the ground. I think that's a way of saying like, like, like a car hits the deck. I mean, he's out, he faints. So, you know, angel's plan doesn't work again. The angel said to him, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand. That's one of the key things to praying effectively. When you set your heart to know God's heart, 
And the things that are important to God become important to you. And you humbled yourself. Second thing, started to start, you see yourself as an instrument of God, not someone who bosses God around, but someone who responds to God's promptings and cries for them. From the time you sought understanding and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come, what? Because of your prayers, because of your words. He was, he was in, the angel then tells him, he, he basically says, I was in battle for 21 days. There was a force of evil over you all, and it took me that long to break through. But what he infers is, your faithful prayers allowed me to come. Because you didn't give up, I was able to be here. And now we're going to begin a whole new chapter of redemption in history. Daniel's prayer sealed the deal. Here's the last example. And I just have to confess to you all, it's troubling to me. It's, it, it troubles me because it reveals what happens when no one asserts their God-given authority to pray. In Ezekiel 22, 30, we'll find it. Once again, Israel's been living in rebellion against God and God promised on the day that he made his covenant, if you violate this covenant with me, then I'll withdraw my protection and my favor, favor and wrath will come, violence will come. And for, for generations, people have just been forgetting God, rejecting God, ignoring God, and, and they're in absolute violation of their promises to God. And so speaking of this situation, God spoke to Ezekiel. And in chapter 22, verse 30, we hear what Ezekiel shares. He said, this is what God told Ezekiel. It's God speaking. I sought for a man among them, speaking of Israel, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. I was looking for someone who would use their ring, who would cry out for the welfare of their city, that would ask for God's pardon, that would stay the wrath that was due the people. I looked everywhere across all of the population. There was no one that was standing on the wall crying out. No one. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them, and I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I've, this is really interesting. I've returned my way upon their heads. In other words, they are getting what they deserve. All along, I've been protecting them from what they deserve. He protects us from what we deserve every day. Instead, he gives us grace. But he's giving this, this people what they deserve. This is what the Lord says. God's mercy is given on the earth when those to whom he's delegated his authority use their authority to ask for mercy. But because no one called for mercy in this instance, none was granted. It matters. It matters that we pray. It's not something that just those, those third grade Sunday school teachers told us because they were supposed to. Like, you, you kids pray. It's because it's God's design. It's how he intends to govern his planet through us. Because God's given you as his child his ring to seal his deals. Your prayers do matter. And your absence of prayer and your lack of prayer matter. More than maybe we've 
ever, ever imagine. So the final question, I guess, as the worship team comes is, um, are you going to use your ring? Are you going to step up into the privilege that is yours to pray for your children and your parents and your siblings and your neighborhood and your government for your city to bring revival and renewal for your, for your pastors, for, for your friends? Are you going to listen to the promptings of the Spirit of God to start to engage in bringing to pass on earth what God wills to do in heaven? Will you use your ring? Let me just pray for us real quick and then we'll worship. Lord, it's just such a privilege to be included in what you're doing in the world and to be in a spot where um, we really can stay the hand of wrath and bring the hand of mercy. Lord, would you let us start to pray for the people that are around us in our lives? Would you let us start to see their faces and ask God what his heart is? Would you let us know what your heart is for these people so that we can pray it into to existence, Lord. Would you teach us how to pray? In this church, would you let this church grow in its passion to stand in the gap where others haven't, to stand on the wall and see what needs to be done for righteousness sake and to pray. Lord, would you set us free and filled with faith to pray for big things and little things, but above all, to pray for your things in response to what you put on our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you've covered us and taken away our shame, that you've called us your own and we have a a place to belong. Now, Lord, would you let us step into our authority to represent you here on this earth? And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.